being in rude health isn't just something you do at work or at home or at play. It's an integrated lifestyle. Hi, it's Hester, and this is Porridge for Brains. Hello. I hope you're doing really well today. Thank you for tuning in and listening. I'm bringing you something that I'm really excited to share. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Nick Barnard, uh, who is the co-founder and chairman of Rude Health. First thing, I've realised I have this really weird mental block around pronouncing the word Barnard, Bernard. Barnard Bernard? I don't know. So Nick happens to have a surname that I actually just can't get my head around. And as someone who, someone who's really interested in words, pronunciation, um, I speak French as well as English. And part of what is always amusing to other people is that I can mimic accents really well. So yeah, I usually can nail the pronunciation of, of most words. But for some reason, this one just seems to evade me. And... I don't know why. But anyway, Nick, B-A-R-N-A-R-D, co-founder and chairman of Rude Health. Nick and I actually ended up having such an amazing conversation that I decided, rather than cutting away a load of it and only uh, bringing you one episode um, in a 45-minute, 50-minute duration, that I would split it up into two. And actually, coincidentally, the conversation had two very distinct parts, so it's worked out really well. So this is going to be a two-parter. Part one, we're going to be talking about kind of living and how we can incorporate being curious with food and being interested in supporting ourselves through nourishment. That's really what we're going to be covering there. And then the second part is where we really, really crack on and talk about porridge. We talk about the Golden Spurtle, which is the international porridge making championships that we are both competing in this year, and that will be coming up in the second episode. A little story before we dig into the episode. So I have been really excited to speak to Nick for some time. About a year ago, so some point in 2021, in fact I think it was during the Easter break, I was at a random garden centre with my partner and his family. If anyone else is a fan of garden centres, I get you. I mean, the garden stuff and the plants and stuff I'm learning to be interested in, but oh my, a garden centre gift shop is almost akin to a National Trust gift shop for me. If anyone's not listening from the UK, um, National Trust uh, is kind of one of our um, property and land conservation trusts, so um, tour like grand gardens and grand stately homes and things like that. Um, They have great gift shops. Garden centres also have great gift shops, lots of condiments, lots of ingredients, lots of candles and stationery and cookbooks. And so, I was at this random garden centre, um, somewhere near Yarm, kind of Middlesbrough way, so quite north in England. And in the book section, there was a book that jumped out at me and it was called Eat Right. And I flicked through and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this one a go. It looks really interesting. 
Um, and I vaguely kind of, I vaguely got the mention that the writer was um, one of the people behind Rude Health, which if you don't know, is a food and drink brand here in the UK. Um, they make porridge blends, mueslis, they do, I've had some really nice um, like crackers and biscuits that they've made. They're also quite well known for their plant milk, so coconut milk, oat milk, that kind of thing. So I picked this book up, I brought it home and it actually astounded me. The lessons and the thoughts and the testimonials that Nick gathered in this book, which is basically a food manifesto, or it's a manifesto on living in a an intuitive way that reflects the world around us and kind of stripping back the layers and trying to find more, like simpler ways of living and enjoying food. There was just so much that got me thinking. And ever since I read that book, um, I use it as a reference and I thought, this guy seems pretty cool. And then when I got my acceptance into this year's Golden Spurtle Porridge Making Championships, I saw that Nick is also competing. And it just got me thinking, I definitely need to see if I can get him on the show. And amazingly, I was absolutely delighted when I got the email from his press team saying, yes, he would love to chat to me for this show. So that's really how we got to where we are now. I'm so, I'm so glad that it happened because Nick is fascinating and the passion that he speaks with around food, living well, finding what works for you and also finding the beauty and the simplicity of food just blew me away and as you can probably hear we definitely struck a chord with each other um it was a total joy talking to nick so without further ado part one porridge for brains hester and nick barnard bernard from root health take it away well porridge season is 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 upon us and the um the autumn um it's so exciting because it, it it's time to to start making our northern hemisphere gruel and so this is going to be all about wellness through our our exciting choices this autumn time and of course the world porridge championship is just around the corner also so what could be what could go wrong i know it's such an exciting time isn't it yeah we are so on the day of recording it's the first of september and um, it does bring with it a, a feeling of change and I guess things things taking a turn, doesn't it? I know this week, um, while I've been getting up, it's still been a little bit dark and I just love that feeling. I love the feeling of seasons changing and I especially love this feeling of kind of nights beginning, nights beginning to close in. Yes, and and also the, the, the expectation of a breakfast that, um, I mean, if you think about it, breakfast is the only meal that you, you, you have a profound, secure feeling about, because within reason, particularly if you're a male, um, you might have the same breakfast every day. But in the summer-winter uh, contrast, you can, of course, what I do in the summer or spring, summer, autumn, early autumn, is I'll have what's in effect cold porridge every morning by soaking my oats and partially fermenting them overnight. And then, of course, as we switch into the autumn months, being a male, I won't change much. I'll just heat it in a pan. Um, so you have this remarkably versatile breakfast throughout the year. But one thing you do know, don't you, when you go to bed, is that your breakfast is going to be the one meal that is more or less 
and very simple and very affirming and very reassuring at the start of your day. When you, as you think about lunch and supper time, it can be so varied or variable in different locations. But breakfast at home with your regular pattern, with your cup of coffee or tea or whatever, what a, what a blessing to have that um, fixed star. Oh, it's like you've reached inside my mind and expressed all of, all of my feelings. Mornings are such a... I guess I don't think that a time of day can necessarily be a passion because, uh, well, it's something that, um, you know, everyone exists throughout the day. But the mornings are such a special time for me. Um, breakfast, as you say, like the routine and the ritual, the quiet, the peace, but also the comfort in the certainty of the morning. I think there's so much bound up there and it feels so I get up quite early I try to get up and give myself a good few hours before I kind of get moving into the day before I start work because that period of time just is the one for me where it feels like it's purely for me and as you say you, you have a reasonable expectation that it will stay the same and it will be as you design it um, and yeah there's just something so I think magical about the the time between waking up and kind of engaging with the, the wider world. Yes, and if you if you if, if you think about it, you you it's the one meal you know you have absolute control of. Obviously, if you're at home rather than travelling, you have that, and also you have that one sense that it doesn't matter if it's the same but with variations throughout the year. Once you've established what agrees with you, and that actually is one of the issues we have with uh, our attitude towards food in in this day and age, and indeed in recent generations is this lack of uh, engagement and appreciation and sensitivity towards the foods that really do you good and make you feel, um, you know, give you that, that, that combination of pleasure and also sustenance. Whereas, of course, we're presented with so many choices that are all around pleasure and convenience. There's so much that I want to dive into there. But before we go any further, we obviously shared your name, a little bit about who you are, but would you mind introducing yourself for the audience kind of and a, and a little bit who you are, what you do, um, what your passions are, please? Well, my name is Nick Barnard. I'm um, in the last, for the last 17 years, I have been a co-founder with uh, my wife, Camilla, of Root Health. And uh, my passions are, well, living really. And of course, food, if you think about it, the two great pleasures in life this won't uh, create too much of a taboo environment. The two great pleasures in life that are very intimate to us are food and sex. And it would be unnatural for me to say I, I'm not interested. That I'm, I'm interested in both. <laughs> no, that's completely fine. Don't don't worry. Yep, I I concur. You're in a safe space to share that opinion. <laughs> so I think for me, food, how we like not just what we eat, but how we eat. That's what I'm really, really fascinated by. And I think also the interplay with then movement, you know, how how what we eat when we eat and our routines and our rituals and also how we move our bodies and how we kind of bring our daily routines and, and the places we go and the, the ways that we move kind of in into that. You're, you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, I, I'm not going to hark on about those two great pleasures of life. <laughs> if you think about it from the point of view of your choices, one makes very careful choices in theory about one's intimate partner or one's intimate acts. And yet we make very, very, very shallow choices about the other intimate act, which is the relationship with food. And so I think we've become 
um, in in many ways, you could say that there's been an obsession with pleasure and a, and a, and, a, and an ignorance around wellness. Um, and the, the the connection that you just made is how does how does food or how do your food habits or your relationship with how does your your relationship with food allow you to thrive and be really in root health? I mean, the, the, the root health was established by my wife and I 17 years ago on a whim based on our wanting to share our love of nourishment with 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 pleasing flavors with our with our family and with our friends and it was a it was a powerfully naive ambition which <laughs> means that it has um merit um but it but it was also um based upon the fact that we came up with the name rude health as a as an inspiring moniker, as an inspiring brand now, I suppose, in its own uh, youthful way. Of course, and you know what root health means. It means to be, you know, it's an old English expression based upon the German uh, origin of, of rude, which is uh, rot, which is red, which is ruddy, which is ruddy, rude. Yeah. So you're in rude health when you've been, um, when, you're, when you're in, uh, you know, when you're in fine fat, or you've been working in the fields, or you've been exercising, or you've been fulfilling your physical uh, best, uh, and feeling well with it, and therefore you are red either because you're, you know, outside, or because you're actually flushed with wellness. Um, and so that sense of eating to be in rude health is what has driven, that has driven uh, the, the entire um, the ethos of of the company and of what we do and breathe and live every day, and of course that then means that being in rude health isn't just something you do at work or at home or at play. It, it's a, it's a it's a it's an integrated lifestyle. You know, there is yeah. no, to me when when people say, "How was your weekend?" I'm not sure what a weekend is because every day is an exciting opportunity to be alive and and thrive in rude health. And that may sound ultimately very um, all, all right for me, but no, I mean, you know, how are you? Well, well I'm absolutely fine. Why why wouldn't I be? Mm. And I think there's something about taking everything that you talk about. It's about taking. Uh, Taking responsibility and accountability, it's not just about that. It's, it's about inquiring into yourself and understanding what you need and how you work and how to design a way of living and a way of eating and a way of loving um, that, that awareness of yourself. And I think as well, I mean, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of etymology, FYI. Um, I run um, a pop-up uh, porridge business as well which kind of I do things here and there and I have done for about five years um now but it's called haver which is old English for oat and there are lots of roots in um different languages um like I think hafer is oat hafer, in German, yeah, um, yeah. and yeah across the board but I also think when um so when I with, with your brand Rude Health I always picture like almost like being really rosy cheeked after a long day, like on the beach or on a big hike or something, you know, when you're like wind and sand and sun beaten, that's what I always picture. Yes, I think so. But, but I think the other thing to, 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 that we've learned over the years, and I think it's worth remembering, is that you don't just have to be in rude health. Well, sorry, the being in rude health outside with the ruddy cheeks and the, you know, that's a vigorous complexion. 
that doesn't that isn't an exclusive exclusive position it's like you know you don't you can't enter this club unless you're red-faced no i think that you we really our greatest challenge is to encourage everyone to be in rude health inside and outside so you've got that glow inside and that's not just from eating a, a, a bowl of my world championship porridge but it is actually that glow inside of that positivity and that thankfulness for this um this being you know this, this this living moment and then it all starts to connect and then you then of course when you um you know you you fully experience this integ- this totally integrated uh a world of of being happy, and uh, that is a blessing that um, we share. And of course, the stimulus for that can be in, in in our case through your porridge, through my porridge, through our drinks. That is a joy to be able to share that with others and to be enthusiastic. Absolutely, um, everything you're saying is just is just music to my ears. One of the things that in the last year, so uh, September last year. I had an official diagnosis of ADHD. And while I was waiting for the assessment appointment, I was feeling kind of listless and I had this sense of urgency and kind of real, like it was very difficult to sit and wait in anticipation. I just wanted to, I kind of think I felt at the time, like I wanted to be able to start living in the knowledge um, in or with more knowledge about who I am and how my brain works. And a couple of the things that I did uh, while I was waiting in this um, funny limbo period was a bit of Googling, always the best way to get answers. But I started reading up on things that I could maybe do in the interim to support myself. And this was from a more than anything, it was from a psychological perspective. And some of the things that I read were around uh, my diet. And so the the small measures that I took before I had the assessment, one was um, trying to limit my sugar intake during the day and notice the effect that that might have on me. And I'm not going to I'm not sitting here from a position of evangelizing any kind of rule that is universal because I absolutely advocate for people working out what's right for them and what suits them. So one of the things that I um, looked at was what would happen if I stopped kind of having additional sugar in my diet throughout the day and maybe waited until towards the end of the day, dinner time to do that. And, um, you know, honestly, the the effect of that was mega. I realised how, just how huge the spikes in energy, I guess that's blood sugar, but yeah, the spikes in energy and emotion and mood um, were when I was just without really um, being aware, incorporating more sugar into my diet. Um, and as I say, I think I think specifically for me as someone with an ADHD brain, I can't quote the science either, but I think I think there's something around my um, neurological makeup that that maybe exacerbates those symptoms. So as I say, it's not a one size fits all. But kind of all of this to say that that food and um, food and mood so the internal and the external are so extricably linked and it's not just about like our digestive system and our fitness it's also about our brain health i mean i'm very very early on understanding what works for me and and why but i think there's so it's all so so inextricably linked yes i mean i i you you know you, you Mikey, we we could be here for hours because the uh, what we're talking about here, Hester, is not complicated. It's much, much more exciting. It's complex. 
And it's very important for us all to understand that nature is complex and man makes things complicated. When you understand that, then you understand that the allopathic medicine route where you're treated as a one-size-fits-all, I mean, that's a little bit rude. But um, you are, in effect, um, being bamboozled with uh, influences and decisions based upon cures that are in theory going to work for, you know, a, a diagnosed group or a diagnosis, whereas in fact what you're looking at is a complex organism with this massive brain that messes us up no end. Uh, you know, we should be spending most of our lives trying to still our monkey mind. Coming back to your point, even though there are studies that come out showing that when you reduce the salt intake of the elderly, they increase. They had an increase of Alzheimer's that happened in uh, Scandinavia, for instance. They all got very excited about, you know, you must reduce your sodium or your salt intake. And of course, um, uh, this then had the, the the extraordinarily obvious effect that then people's brains stopped functioning so well because we are, if in effect, ex-maritime creatures. Our blood is salty, and we need just. We need good quality sodium chloride with minerals to give us um, um, good brain functioning. And, and just in the same way, if you take all sorts of so-called modern day ailments, whether it's um, a diagnosis of, um, on the ASD spectrum or whether it's Parkinson's or whether it and so on, you're here talking about a brain and also a brain gut link, as you highlighted, um, given we're only just beginning to... Uh, understand the complex, not complicated, complex and therefore uh, magical link between the gut and the brain and therefore between the food you eat and your brain. Um, so what we're doing here is your experiment is super valid uh, in the sense that you took, you took responsibility and you said, mm -hmm. I'm going to try. I'm going to, hang on, I think the most important thing is, is a really amazing book that you would love called Nourishment by Fred Provenza. And for all of you listening, this book is ravishing. Fred Provenza, he's, a, he's the most delightful animal behavioralist I met at various conferences I go to prior to three years ago. And um, to Acres, for instance, which is a, um, a regenerative farming conference um, every year in America. And I heard Fred Provenza speak and I went, to speak, and, I went and made acquaintance with him. And this delightful man has written a book called Nourishment, where he, in effect, he says, what is it that animals can teach us, i.e. wild animals and even to a degree domesticated animals can teach us about our, how we eat and our eating habits? And what he highlights is what you've just beginning to discover or indeed discovered and thriving on is that we have lost the ability to discern what does us good in the way of food and also in terms of activities in our life. Let's say we can just concentrate on food. And so he studied uh, wild and domesticated or farm animals and came up with the fact that a series of facts that are absolutely um, spellbinding that, you know, a cow, for instance, goes around and its lips and its mouth, very, very sensitive, or it's not its lips, its mouth and its tongue are very sensitive and it, and it self-medicates. It goes around. A, now, if you bang a cow up in a shed and you feed it nothing but forage, how could it self-medicate? So you're not going to get wellness. It's like banging somebody up in a concentration camp and feeding them uh, institutional food. So you, what you're doing is beginning to fire up your senses, your sensory relationships in your body, which are complex between your mouth, I mean, between your senses, i.e. your sense of smell and touch and sight 
and then also your gut because there are sensors in your gut which are super powerful in terms of how they react and you're beginning to fire them up and say wake up come and come and join me on this adventure and help me find what makes me function to be happy it's 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 that connection isn't it i guess in a way part of the way that many of us live our lives you know we are not in we're in very well you know entirely man-made environments and i mean technology is you know amazing look at look at what we've created and look at what we have built and look at what we're able to do with all of the learning and all of the stuff that we've discovered and yeah has it brought happiness or has it brought wellness no i would imagine and as you i guess to your point it's something that i think about a lot at the moment It, it is that simplicity or it's the it's that um complexity versus complicated and and i actually think it's it's i think what we also do a lot is okay i'm struggling or okay here's a problem what can i throw at it what can i layer over it to try and solve it but actually maybe can we sometimes stop and go okay what can i maybe strip away what can i maybe remove how can i um peel away some of these layers to understand what is actually at play here? Well, that's right. I mean, that's where the holistic approach, I mean, in that Chinese traditional medicine, when, when, you know, when practiced with great wisdom is, is an all in, is an all embracing and it, and it's absolutely, it's, um, it's an, it's, it's in total immersion, you know, you're being examined uh, in your totality, but if we come back to that, to the idea of farm animals versus uh, wild animals, if you think about uh, the parallels between farm animals and human existence in cities, they just run side by side. Because there you are. I mean, what is absolutely tragic? And I only realised this two or three years ago. You know, you look out into the English countryside in the where there's pasture, and you think of the sort of bucolic rural landscape and there are the cows and of course if they're milking cows you'll get all very sentimental about that if you consider that something to be sentimental about um, in terms of wellness um, and, and until you realize in fact that more than half of the milk in this country or the, the greater majority of milk in this country is produced by cows that never go out so in which case they're inside they can't self-medicate by going out to find herbs and forbs and they can't get them. They don't have the, nutri- the, the, the nutrition and the, and the vitality from the, um, the, uh, the biosphere of the, of, the, of, the, of the pastures. And I'm not talking about grass. I'm talking about pastures rich in diversity. Um, and then, of course, when they get ill, what happens? They, you have an allopathic solution, which comes back to your point, is a solution based. In other words, we're going to go down narrow band down this complicated route to say, okay, well, we're going to give them this antibiotic or this drug or whatever it is, um, and then we're going to medicate them. Well, that sounds like an individual in a city, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. They don't get out in the sense that they got, I mean, in the sense that you are in a city. Um, your food landscape is, is being offered to you through a, um, you know, a retail environment where you can, and there is no excuse, actually, you can be sprouting seeds at home. So in theory, you can bring vitality and nourishment into your home on your windowsill, and you can grow, uh, you know, herbs in pots and so on. You can, you can make the change, but for the most part, you're, 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 um, you, know, you you are being um, given your food landscape through the um, uh, retail environment around you. So therefore, it is it is divorced from the um, you know the, the freshness and the engagement with real life um, foraging, as it were. But those are the very strong parallels, and we've got very sick 
I'm not saying at all, but the, you know, you would argue that industrial farming has created uh, a, a sick soil and animal land, landscape. And, and of course, we are running parallel and we serve each other. You get cheap food from sick landscape, farming landscapes, and you get sick people from cheap food, you know, from, from, from um, impoverished food. And so it goes on. And what you've done is absolutely one tiny step at a time one small step just for yourself and then to evangelize about it is and then one person at a time to be able to uh to 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 realize that what they put in their mouth what they put in their bodies you know is going to make them stronger or weaker and is going to give them more or less pleasure and you can you have responsibility for that and that's exciting and i've I'm, years ago we used to have um not years ago maybe six seven eight years ago we supported abergavenny food festival and uh, we had a series, you may have seen them online, uh, there's a YouTube on Root Health podcast, uh, not podcast, ranting. And I was a sort of chief ranter because I was the person they wouldn't let out of the office because I would spin my chair around at any time and start ranting about, did you know this or did you? And of course, I then put it all in my bookie, right? But the point was, we used to go out every September to Abergavenny and we would hold Root Health rants. And, and people would say to me, you know, well, doesn't it make you anxious? You know, what should I eat? And I was saying, well, actually, no. Once you, as you just described, Hester, once you have an inquiring outlook and you're full of positivity, you are liberated because you start to see what not to eat rather than to be afraid of what to eat. And the connection with your wellness and, and you, Hester, not yes. me, you, you might like there are people who can, uh, you know, who love carbs, whereas I'm much more of a fat and protein person. And, and each of us are uniquely different. But the fundamental principles of our physiology are the same. And that is that you sequester fat through carbohydrates. You can eat as much protein and as fat, although you shouldn't eat so much protein anyway. Uh, in, in principle, our ancestors didn't. They ate, you know, they were mostly looking for fat and vital organ meat when they came to animal uh, foods. But the point is we thrive on different combinations of food, but the fundamental principles of how we operate physiologically are absolutely the same. Where do you learn all of this information? I know that um, you've been acquiring these facts and you've been passionate about this probably longer than, than I've been able to because I've just turned 30. But yeah, where do you where have you learned this stuff? That's such a good question because because I'm just a hypothecator. When when I I've written books about India and Indian textiles, and uh, I travelled in India a lot when I was your age, and I remember seeing this this statement on a sign saying "hypothecated by," and I thought, what on earth does that mean? Of course, the idea is that you're just reworking what has existed before in ancestral wisdom. And of course, we've shut that down on the basis of science supreme and uh, convenience and, uh, you know, domination of nature is supreme. But I'm just hypothecating and repurposing and bringing alive what our ancestors took for granted. And um, the if you think about our age difference, um, when I was 30 or in, in my 30s, I, I had some profound understanding um, but I, it took, uh, you know, until I was in my late 50s and mid 50s to, and I suppose, early 50s, starting Rude Health, um, to begin to ask the questions of the backstory behind every um, food and drink that I came across. And, and I suppose you never stop asking questions, but you don't, ask, you don't stop asking questions because you're worried. You stop asking questions because you're curious. 
Yeah. You're curious. And I can remember moving to Somerset when I suppose I was just a bit older than you from Balham to this absolutely idyllic, seemingly idyllic pastoral landscape in um, yeah, Bruton and looking across these fields. And of course, now I look at it under the fields of, of theoretically of, of pasture. And now I look at it and I realise that they're actually deserts because these are just mono this is monoculture in another way. There's, you know, there's just, um, uh, there's nothing but very little variety in the pasture. It's mostly grasses um, and they're missing herbs and so on. So what I'm looking at is this landscape of pasta. It's as if you're feeding the cows pasta every day, whereas what they want is variety, endless variety, or they want to have the choice of variety. And that woke me up. Um, one day the farmers sprayed a selective herbicide with an on with an uh, with a, uh, a wind that was far too strong, and it blew onto my garden, which was um, uh, I'd created a sort of mini Chelsea Physic herb garden um, uh, over the ten or twelve years I'd been there, and it wiped out my garden. And I thought, well, hang on a second, you've just wiped out my garden, which is full of variety, but you've sprayed this to kill one or two broadleafed uh, weeds in your in your in your in effect monoculture of grass. And then it just opened. It just it just goes from there. You just start asking, well, why are you doing that? And what does that mean for what the animals are eating? What does it mean in terms of what you've just killed? What does that mean in terms of uh, nature's diversity? And then you 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 have a mad moment and you start a food business and uh, have a supremely naive moment. And then the moment when you do that and you start looking into supplies and farming and in great detail, because you're concerned about the integrity of the sourcing, you begin to unravel. There are backstories to, to all of the foods that we take for granted. But I think the most important thing to recognize here is that uh, root health and eat right and what we're saying here has been informed by our ancestors, has been informed by what they had learned through, through hundreds and thousands of years of handed down legacy understanding. Um, and certain cultures reached a, have reached a zenith with that. You know, if you can think about the Indian and Chinese food cultures, these go back thousands of years worth of wisdom, um, whereas ours seems to be largely sort of very naive based because of our temperate uh, landscape in, or our temperate climate where we, and we don't have the wonderfully uh, complex interrelationships with nature and with our wellness that, say, the Ayurvedic uh, food landscape has. Fundamentally, eat right, root health, me you i'm informing you and your listeners i was informed by marvelous magical people who shared openly their food wisdom and eat right is full of recipes from friends and uh, associates and um and wise and and uh, gentle people uh, from around the world who shared their food wisdom for their um pleasure and for their wellness and we should we have to keep doing this we not have to we it is a, it is it is important it is important to share generously and to be thankful for this knowledge because then it brings us alive and it makes us happy. And telling stories is, this is something I harp on about. I mean, there's only been, I think, one other episode before before this one, but it's something that I will continue to harp on about, um, which is about storytelling and how telling stories and sharing stories has been the way since the beginning of humanity that we have got to grips with and found ways to articulate not just the world around us and things that we don't understand but our place within it 
sharing stories and telling stories and you you talk about your um oh what was it hyper um when you you when you are hypothecating you're hypothecating but that's just um adaptation and and that's what that's how we communicate we tell stories by taking what we what we can see what we hear the stories that we hear and by reversioning and and moving them on and applying them to the what we can see and that in itself is what it is to be human i think it is and and you know hester the most important if you think about the the sensitivity around this you're not what you're doing is you're taking the wisdom and you are accepting it thankfully you're grateful for it and then you are allowing it to change now that in itself is a terrific and um worthwhile act one mouthful at a time you know in other words you are allowing you are you are welcoming change and this is fundamental you know i'm not plagiarizing ancestral wisdom i'm rejuvenating i'm in, enabling it through my I'm, I'm repurposing it in a language that makes more sense, or I'm trying to, although e Write has got 140,000 words when I was asked to write 40, because you see, as you, we press this button for this podcast, you know, when do you stop? Because there's, it's so complex, and there's so much to say, and it's so exciting. You know, you've got this vehicle, your body, and I hate to call it a vehicle because it's not. It's this extraordinary, magical uh, collection of, of, of bacteria and um, water and... Um, uh, and just just thrilling you, know, you you need to look after that um that uh, body and therefore what you put in your body you know you, you don't have a second chance so mm. don't mess it up don't be afraid that doesn't make you afraid that should empower you to mm. say yes i will make time it is important because i am looking after my wellness because i'm enjoying life and you're not looking after it for anybody else other than yourself. And I think that's the thing. I think that's where we come unstuck as well sometimes because actually you know who benefits when you look after your body and seek to understand your body, you and your entire experience of living. The the difference I, I mean, so I've been on uh, kind of limiting the sugar last year was I've done a lot of things. I've always been curious about um, kind of my relationship with food and the world around me. That wasn't the first experiment. But every time I find something else out about how to make myself feel good, it makes living all that more joyful. You know, it makes makes everything that much more easy. It makes things, it helps things make sense. And I think there's a lot of complicated superfluous information and you know it's all about the environment and the world that we're living in now but but when you seek to understand what works for you the person that benefits is you too yeah that's that's absolutely yes you you are that doesn't mean it's selfish that just means that because of course what you do then is you're you're perhaps as one might say um naively enthusiastic with others uh, and uh, that's a good thing also um but i think we're a good demonstration of that in this conversation aren't we i mean you you know just just the joy in being able to uh you know when you for instance when you make ghee you make ghee and um, one workshop i remember uh and this has happened actually many times but this was to do with ghee we were making ghee and there was a, a maturing Asian lady, Indian Asian lady, and she burst into tears as we were cooking the butter, as we were heating the, in effect, rendering the butter fat. And, 
And she said, I, I'm sorry. She, she, she was laughing, but she was also crying. She said, this is my childhood. This is, I haven't smelled this since I was a little girl. This is my mother. And that connection where you do it yourself and then you share with others is what also the Koreans loosely call the difference between two types of food uh, in our lives, certainly in, in their kitchen. One is hand food. And ghee is hand food. You make it, you know, when you cook and you prepare from, um, you know, the ingredients and then you put it together and you, you share or you serve it to yourself with love and you give thanks. That's hand food because you've, you've, you've engaged and touched, you've selected the foods, you've smelt the ingredients, you've smelt the raw materials, and then you've cooked and you've savoured the aromas and the tastes, and then you've sat and shared the food, which, of course, is another fundamental missing link in our lives, is how little we share foods, um, you know, in a, in a communal environment. That's hand food. Unfortunately, that is in the minority by comparison to uh, mouth food. And mouth food in Korean terms is, is ice cream, you know, I mean, not homemade, I mean, commercial ice cream and ready meals and, um, you know, cut up pieces of pineapple in a plastic container um, in a, uh, you know, in a chiller section. That's mouth food. In other words, it, you just can be a glutton and you can do it without actually having to have any relationship whatsoever with the sourcing or the preparation of the food other than ping-ping and simple heating up, let's say, in a conventional oven. And really, we should be doing 98% hand food and 2% mouth food, and we're um, probably doing 98% mouth food and 2% hand food. And that then gives you this disconnection, uh, this fundamental disconnection that goes all the way from where you shop and how you forage for your food. And I mean forage in the sense you go to farmer's markets, you're not foraging you know, in, 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 um, in, in, a, in a rural environment, but you're foraging because you need to actually select carefully. And that goes all the way back to that, you know, in the sense that the, the disconnect is complete. And that then gives you an, in, an, an insight as to how the food is not nourishing you. It's not giving you the wellness and the energy not just the calorific energy, but the um, nourishment, the energy, um, to, to, to allow you to function, uh, to, to be happy. I mean, you're literally being brought down by your gluttony and by your craving for foods that are designed to um, encourage craving. And we all know what happens, don't we, Hester, when you crave is the crash. And what happens after the crash? You recover and then you crave again. But no wonder as well it's not satisfying because... Well, I think for me, certainly what what satisfies and what what I guess what fills you up is not just the flavor or the substance of the food itself. And I know that actually the, the difference between buying something processed versus something that you've made or has been made, you know, by hand by someone um, near you or with you. You know, there's a love. With, 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 with love. I mean, that's yeah. the that's one of the aspects is that you are respectful and full of love. The satisfaction, the difference in, you know, it, it's it's that brain-body link again. You're, I'm sure, can't quote any science on this, but I'm sure, you know, your brain registers a sense of satisfaction and um, fullness from the psychological engagement with what you're eating as well, not yes, just the flavour, yeah. not just the, you know, the physical matter, the material matter, the weight or the very mass of what you're putting into your mouth. Yes, I think, I mean, it has to, it's also, 
this conversation is 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 truly stimulating because it's <laughs> it's it's throwing up connections with all these marvelous, interesting, dynamic, generous people I've met throughout my life who who've who've inspired me. We should talk okay. about porridge. Yes, yes, no, I, I, there's there's. We could, we actually could keep going for a really long time, Nick, and I can keep, I can keep drawing it back around to then storytelling and our psychology, and there's, there's so much more. But I, I agree. I mean, we, we need to crack on and talk about porridge at some point. I think right. one thing I just want to very quickly kind of round off that on. I'm definitely going yep. to get the book um, nourishment, but, um, but it's, it's something that you raised earlier on which is that it's actually not difficult and um, it's actually it can feel like you know we we can feel like we don't have time or all of this is a very privileged position to be in and yes it's also easy because it happens to be a complete passion of mine and obviously a complete passion of yours but it, it it's not difficult it's exciting to experiment and also it doesn't have to be expensive yes there are um you know there are things that are really good for you that do cost a lot to try but things like and this is maybe a great segue but things like porridge are not expensive in fact they're one of the cheapest foods that you can buy in any shop right if you yeah. shop in the supermarket you can get oats they're pretty good value different varieties but pretty good value they that like i mean i am really passionate about oats but but if you peel back the layers and if you're trying substituting or simplifying actually you can save money and you can reduce process and you can find time and that's something we've talked about this two or three times now you take this into your hands and it's simpler cheaper and easier and full of ceremonies and patterns and rhythms, which we all, particularly, you know, when we're on a, you know, when we like patterns and rhythms, is something that 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 helps us to 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 feel alive. <sighs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that as stimulating, invigorating, energizing as I did. Clearly, it set my brain alight. And I can't wait to share episode two, part two with you, which is where we're going behind the scenes at the Golden Spurtle and hyper-focusing on oats. If you want to get involved, if you want to be on the show, I'll put some links in the show notes, message me on Instagram. And if you have any questions, I'm going to be doing some Q&As in the next couple of months. So please let me know anything you want to know about oats, me, neurodivergence, anything. Um, yeah, feel free. Have a wonderful day and you'll be hearing from me soon. <laughs>